now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is a producer, writer, director, acting teacher, children's book author, award-winning magician, semi-pro poker player, and one of the most versatile and popular and likable actors of his generation. You know his work from feature films like Pretty Woman, Jacob's Ladder, Coneheads, Shallow Hal, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Love, Valor, and Compassion, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, and hit TV shows like The Simpsons, Friends, The Larry Sanders Show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, American Dad, Star Trek, Voyager, the Orville, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, as well as starring in the cult series Duckman. And, of course, as one of the most indelible characters in the history of television, the lovably neurotic George Costanza in the iconic show Seinfeld. And there's more. He's also starred in national tours on Broadway and off-Broadway stage with Merrily We Roll Along, The Rink, Broadway Bound, Fish in the Dark, and Jerome Robbins Broadway, for which he was an awarded a Tony for Best Actor in a Musical. In a career that started way back when he played a member of the Von Trump family. Or Von Trapp family. Von Trapp family. <laughs> oh, Von Trump, yes. This this was the one that had to do with Donald Trump escaping the Nazis. And and he you when you when you hear Donald Trump sing Sound of Music, it it is yeah. unbelievable. This Edelweiss will tear your heart out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and this man has gone on to work with Stephen Sondheim, Mel Brooks, Hal Prince, Liza Minnelli, Harrison Ford, Robert Duvall, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Neil Simon, Larry David, Robert De Niro, and most impressively of all, Gilbert Gottfried. Please welcome to the show a true renaissance man and one of our favorite performers and a man who almost single-handedly responsible for killing the McDonald's McDLT, the (laughs) multi-talented Jason Alexander. 
Wow. What an introduction. And by the way, I am running out to write The Sound of Music with the Von Trump family. Yeah. That, <laughs> that is next. Screw West Side Story. That is the new revival. It's a million dollar idea. Now, oh, God. Now, I just watched that commercial yesterday. Frank and I watched that. And I remember when that was out. It was like a styrofoam yeah. container. The patty was on one side, the lettuce on the other. The lettuce stays yeah. cool. The meat yes, stays hot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And and yeah. the commercial is like you like Robert uh, Preston in uh, Music Man. You very, get into this right. town and people, you rev them up. Do you remember the song? Yeah, sure. Please. I mean, people shove it all the time. Um it's a quarter pound of cheese on the hot, hot side, and the hot stays hot. And a, a lettuce and tomato on the cool, cool side, and the cool stays cool. The, 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 the something that da, da, that's in between. Da, 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 da. It's a new McDLT. And then it was like a rap thing. You know, we, were, we, we created rap. The sandwich died, but the rap genre was born. So, <laughs> and, and it's a perfectly integrated area. You know, of healthy, happy people, so yes. excited about the mayoralty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Our mutual friend Rupert Holmes, who we were talking about off mic, Jason, says says yes. there was something about you, there was some controversy about you not knowing a mic was on while making that spot. Does that mean anything to you? That's that's true. I yeah, um, I didn't quite understand body mics, uh, which of course you know we all wear now. For even in the theater, we wear body mics, but. The McDLT commercial, being a musical commercial, was all lip sync to playback. So why I had a couple of spoken lines, but that's why I was body mic. The the um, the video village, as we call it in the industry, but where where the clients and the director and everybody was sitting watching the monitors was over a block away from where we were because it was a long mm -hmm. street scene, and we are we were now into additional days of filming, and. I couldn't quite understand why it was taking so long, and now we're matching, we're matching something that we shot two days earlier, and they were they were pausing for an hour at a time because the clouds in the sky didn't quite match what had happened days earlier. So we did one take, and we waited an hour. We did another take. We waited an hour. We did a third take. We waited an hour, and as far as I can tell, they've got it. They've got it in abundance. And, I, and everyone's worn out, and no one's being told anything, and we're sweating in the sun and, you know, being treated like cattle the way actors usually are. And we finish another take, and they go, all right, back to number one, we'll do another one. And I, a block away, go, may I, may I use profanity on your show? Is that Sure, okay? please. Yes, okay. Uh, I go, oh, my God, this fucking McDonald's bullshit. They got all the fucking money in the fucking world, and they're just going to do this over and over and over. And I'm just complaining to myself in the wind... And I, and I, over one of the speakers, I hear, oh, Jason, I'm so sorry. You're... And I went, oh, I'm so dead. I'm so dead. I'm just dead. That spot is on yeah. YouTube. It's got a lot. Yeah, oh, the spot, the commercial has yeah. lived on. The product went right into the toilet. The product, the, uh, the McDLT. The commercial was a hit. It tanked. You've, you, how many commercials did you end up doing, Jason? I mean... The Hershey's in my kiss, life a lot Delta Gold chips oh, yeah. planters peanuts yeah, yeah, yeah. the one with Yogi yeah. Berra 
Oh my God! In my career, I've probably I've probably done you know fifty or sixty That's a lot. commercials. You, you, I, yeah, I did have one with a... Joey Faye, Gilbert. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I have she's kisses. Yeah, I have a yeah. vague remembrance. I'm pretty sure it was you, where you you're like arrested by some in some southern town for speeding. Yeah, it's a Western Union money order spot, and it ran for like four years. Wow. It was a huge spot. It was in vignettes, but my little vignette was the kid who's been arrested by, you know, the mirror reflecting uh, cop with the with the shades. And the and uh, I'm in the office. I'm on the phone with my father and I'm going, Dad, is there any way you could send the cash today? And then I, I get wired the money and I, I actually ad-libbed in one of the takes. I handed the cash over to the police officer and I patted him on the shoulder and went... Keep in touch, and and that made it into the spot, and apparently it was it, it, that's, funny enough to run for four years. That's what I remember. That line, yeah. "Keep in touch, it's, keep in oh, touch," which I stole from Woody Allen. It's, fr- it's a direct Woody Allen steal. The jail steal. cell in Annie Hall. Yeah, yeah. Keep, 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 I, keep in touch. I knew, I knew it's it the right steal. And you did an out and out imitation of him in that. You, you were bet. Like, keep in touch. Yeah, with the sputtering and the spitting, and yeah, I, absolutely the thinning red hair. I I did everything I could. And, now, you also, when you started Seinfeld, was an out-and-out imitation of Woody Allen. Well, it was certainly, the audition was, because the, and I've told, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, the audition, there was no Larry, there was no Jerry. They were doing everything here in L.A., but the audition for a couple of actors was in New York, and they were just asked to put 20 actors on tape, or whatever it might be. So they only sent four pages of the original pilot script with no indication of what to do with it. And when I read it, it read like a Woody Allen film. So uh, that's where I went, well, I'll use that. So I went and got the glasses that I didn't wear at the time. And as George, eventually I did a thick New York accent. But for the audition, I was literally doing... You know, Woody Allen and you know, <laughs> sputtering and, and, and pontificating. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, that's ridiculous. I'll never see that again. And then when Larry called, Larry and Jerry called uh, to have me come out to L.A. to screen test, they said, love everything, do everything you were doing, just not quite the Woody Allen sound. And so I backed off of that. But the for the first season, season and a half, yeah, Woody, Woody Allen was my role model for the kind of nebbishy guy that I thought George was intended to be until I realized that it, it was an avatar for Larry and then my whole thinking about him shifted. The Seinfeld Chronicles as it was called yeah. as it was called in those yeah. days. Right. Yeah. Day. I think it was day. That's it was called the that day. day. Yeah. And, what? and you at your hippest uh I guess pussy chasing time in your career, uh you were once entered magic camp. Oh, yeah. We jump around, Jason, Tannins. as you can see. Yeah. <laughs> I was at Tannen's, Tannen's Magic Camp. Well, I thought I, I, I had no interest in being an actor when I was a kid because I was actually pretty uh, pretty shy and, and a pretty uh, intimidated kid, kind of frightened little kid. So I was a latchkey kid. I'd come home to a mostly empty house, and I'd go in my room, and I would screw around with magic books, you know, cards and coins and that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, if you can do a magic trick, it kind of makes you feel powerful if you can have somebody go, whoa, wow. Uh, And I thought that's what I was going to do. And I was serious enough about it that I went to magic camp when I was about 12. And I, um, uh, there was a bunch of kids there. I wanted, again, I wanted to be that close-up magician. And they had a wonderful magician named, his professional name was Slidini, uh, who was a gorgeous close-up magician. And he looked at my hands and went, he was Italian. He went, it's enough for you. 
He's, he's not familiar. <laughs> he, he, he looked at my he looked at my stubby little hands and my fat little fingers, and he just went, "You're no, no." Uh, and and he was right. And so I that's sort of when I started looking around, sniffing around for something else I might and, be able to and do. And the other things that you couldn't do because of your small hands was yes. playing the guitar or the violin. Oh, well, I knew, listen, I, when I had to, so I don't know if this was true when you guys were growing up. In third grade, we had to take an instrument. There was no choice. You had to study an instrument. Well, I would have been happy with drums, but my parents refused uh, drums. I would have been happy with piano. We didn't have one. Uh, and I had really heavy orthodonture. Uh, when I was in third grade. So I couldn't play anything that was going to go in or press hard against my mouth. So that left, you know, things like violin. And I went, well, come on. They're already kicking my ass. Just, you know, walking down the street. My fat little ass is being, you know, if I start carrying a violin case, they're going to shove it up my. So I, I had an uncle who played the flute and he was able to get me a flute for free. And so that's how I, I, I became a flute player. I would never have played the violin. I knew that was instant death. The flute case doesn't look like you could be carrying a weapon in there. It doesn't give itself away. So I, I, I bought a little time with the flute. I appreciate the Slidini reference too, Jason. I saw him in the, in the Ricky Jay documentary. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He was famous. Oh, he was Slidey. brilliant. He was, they called him the Fred Astaire of magic. Yeah, he he yeah. always wore a top hat and, and a tails coat, and his hands you, just moved you beautifully. Him? And, no. you remember him? You'd see him on variety shows. Yeah. 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 And, he had a career. He worked. Yeah, he had a career. <laughs> and when you entered acting school, you had some acting teacher, Mr. Spruill. Or yeah, Jim Spruill. Oh, wow, you did you research. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You guys Frank shot because I usually, <laughs> usually I come on these shows and go. So you were on Seinfeld, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Jason, he's worked hard for this. This is amazing. Yeah. So yeah, what? Jim Spruill, he he reset my my whole thinking about uh, uh, working as an actor. I, I went to co- having been highly influenced by charismatic performers like Ben Vereen and and, yeah, uh, and Bill Shatner. Him. I thought I was going into sort of the dramatic world. I thought I would be the next great dramatic actor. And I spent my freshman and first half of my sophomore year sort of trying to gravitate towards those roles. Jim Spruill was African-American. He was probably in his 50s when I was at school in the late 70s. And he had come up through street theater. Uh, in, uh, in uh, I think in Boston or or Pittsburgh, at, you know, doing this sort of rough around the edges, real hardcore theater to sort of change people's view of the world. And he was a real down to earth guy. And he brought me into his office and he said, uh, "Here's my assessment of you. I I know that your heart and soul is Hamlet, and that you would be a profound Hamlet, but you are never going to play Hamlet." So you best get good at Falstaff. And what he was saying was he he took an accounting of me that I was too immature to take. I was short. I was always a minimum of 20 pounds overweight. I had already started losing hair. There was no way I was going to be the next Olivier. So he... He kind of said, if you want a commercial career, you got to start thinking about comedic roles because that's that's sort of your look. And I hadn't ever really thought about it. So he was the guy that said, think about comedy. And that's when I, I did. I started really paying attention to the comedy albums and watching great comedic actors or comedians uh, who performed and, and trying to figure out what 
made funny funny uh, and and steal as much as I could. This is fascinating. What what kind of comedy albums? I'm I'm interested to see what kind of education you were. Oh, you were, everything you that to was give out yourself. from. Yeah, everything from you know the the singles like uh, uh, Cosby, Carlin, um, Robert Klein, uh, Robert Klein, yeah. Bob Newhart, yeah. those guys to Fireside Theater to you know to all the to Monty Python mm-hmm. had albums out at that time. So anything that was working as comedy, um, you know, I, Woody Allen. I, I, I so I would listen to those routines over and over and over, not just for its content, but for what they were doing in performance. Ah, that elevated it, you know, because you can take a, a any one of those guys. You can take a Cosby story, a Woody Allen story, a, a New Heart routine. If they don't do it, it not it doesn't necessarily land. It's not it's not bulletproof writing. It is written for their persona, and so trying to understand how they were making this stuff work was what I was really sort of focused on. That's fascinating. The timing and the and the structure too. Timing, structure, yeah, yeah. musicality, yeah. Uh, 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 character, you know? We talk about that, don't we? How musical, how how, uh, yeah. how comedy is musical. Well, because I, I remember hearing Mel Brooks say when he auditions actors, he wants to hear them sing. Uh, because it's like when you figure it's like, you know, the Marx Brothers, Jack Benny, all these people Henny were... Henny Youngman. Yeah, sure. Henny Youngman. They were all yeah. musicians. Victor Borga. Sure. Yeah. 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 So exactly. how come you're so tone deaf? Because you're a brilliant, <laughs> you're a brilliant Canadian. <laughs> well, you know, just because I studied it didn't mean I, no, I, I wasn't I, an A student. I, I, you know. I was asking him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Gilbert. Yeah. <laughs> Gilbert Gilbert has established his own melody that, uh, you know, yeah. it's that tone right there, that <laughs> melody. It's got a note and a half, uh, and it's played on a very specific instrument. <laughs> Jason, he has sung on this show with Tommy James and Jimmy Webb. And uh, who else, Darren? Wow. Neil, Tony, Neil Sedaka. Neil Sedaka, Tony Orlando. We'll have to send you the clips. Uh, please. It, it How is, is the album not out? It is something to behold. Yeah. And he's very musical. At, at one point, uh, you, you were actually uh, trying to wear a toupee. At one point, not only at one point, one point after Seinfeld had ended. Yeah, ah. it was, uh, after I had well established that I was a bald man. So you weren't <laughs> fooling anybody. I wasn't this, trying to fool yeah, anybody. Yeah. I I was actually making a life statement. So uh, around that time that Seinfeld ended, I was I, I was up for a couple of film roles that I was really excited about. I really thought I'd be good. And I didn't get them. And one of the reasons that kept coming back to me is I just look so much like George and there's so much George and... Uh, you know, they just couldn't imagine. And up until Seinfeld, really, most of my living theatrically as an actor had been being sort of a, a chameleon, changing the way I look, the way I sound, the way I do things. So now all of a sudden, you know, they're meeting me in real life and they're equating me with this one single character. And I got so tired of it that I, I went, OK, you know what? Bullshit. I'm going to put on a toupee and I don't have to look like George. Watch. Watch me. And I did it blatantly in the open. Not to fool anybody, but to really sort of have the industry go, oh, oh, if you put a wig on me, it doesn't look so much like George. After two years of that, the industry didn't give a shit, and I felt stupid. So I I took it off, and my wife said, you were such a horse's ass for two years with the, with the toupee. And I heard you used to, after wearing the toupee for a while, you would take like a knife or something and scrape like the goo. 
And oh no, because I didn't. No, that's uh, that. You may be confusing me with guys. So there are many different kinds of toupees. There are kinds where you attach them with like a surgical glue, and you just wear it straight for. <laughs> Weeks at a time, you know, and when you do that, oh, I know what you know. I know what you're talking about. Early, early, early. No, I get it now, Gilbert. Yeah, okay. So when I was still in my twenties, and there was, I was not really bald, but I was balding, and I, it was neither fish nor fowl. And I thought, um, I thought, you know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go one way or the other. I either gotta shave until I'm really like a bald, or I gotta add more hair. And that was when men's club, hair club for men, uh, yeah. was a big thing. And what they do is they they take a toupee, they make a toupee, and then using where your hairline or what passes for a hairline is, they make a braid out of it with what is essentially fishing line, and then they sew the toupee into that braid, so you can't take it off. And you go for about three weeks at a time uh, until your hair grows out a little bit. And then they take it off and they re-sew it so it lays flat again. But in that three-week time, you can't clean under the damn thing. So <laughs> your 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 head is building up like a cottage cheese that just kind of sits under this thing. And when they take it off, you just kind of, it's like scraping soap scum off the top of your head. And it, it's got an odor and it, I mean, it was just a, they would give you products to sort of kind of tamp it down a little bit. It was, it was just a freak show. It it's, a, it's interesting, Jason. I watched, um, I watched you in, uh, in Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah. And I also watched, <clears throat> and I also, we do insane research on this show and I also watched Dunstan Checks In. Yeah, sure. I don't, I don't notice it. Two, two, three minutes into, into, into each production. I just accept, oh, of course I, not. I, I just accept it. I'm not sitting there going, oh, wait a second. He's well, a, sure, because you're I used to buy, seeing actors play many different roles. Yeah, I just the completely only buy get, the character. I know. The only I, I think this is something that producers and directors worry about more than the audience. Nobody, they're worried that when I go on screen and anything else now, they're gonna go, the audience is gonna go, oh look, it's George, and they will for about two seconds, and then if I do my job and the audience does their job, we're on to the next thing. But why that hurts TV actors? Where I yeah. guarantee you, for a while, when Tom Hanks came out in a movie, they went, oh, it's Forrest Gump. But nobody seemed to care about that. So, right. You know, it's uh, it's just something that happens, I think, because I played this character for so long um, and and people just equate me with it. So they're, they're, they, they cry bullshit if they see me look like something else, unless it's really, really hugely different. Well, I think it's a credit to you. I mean, I watched you, you're, the character you played in the paper, too, which is so different. Yeah, than, yeah, yeah. Than, than George or, or, or a character who's likable. And I don't, I'm not sitting there going, oh, it's, jo it's George Costanza. I mean, you're, you're oh, well, very good at disappearing into parts. Thank you. Where the hell did you, you learn to dance like you did in <laughs> Bye Bye Birdie? Um, you're very light, so, if I may say. Well, bless your heart. Uh, I, when I fell into theater shortly after that incident at Magic Camp, I, I, I tell the story about how we moved from Maplewood, New Jersey to Livingston, New Jersey. And it's the girl in the pool. So I, was, I knew nobody. It was summer. I wasn't even in classes yet. And um, my parents had gotten me uh, a pass to the community pool, you know, thinking I would meet people there. And I, I'm, I'm standing in the pool. I know nobody. And this beautiful girl comes up and says, hi, do you sing? And uh, I was smitten, so I said, uh, yeah, sure. And they pulled me into a production of what will now be called uh, The Sound of Music uh, with the Von Trumps. But it was a, uh, but it was a, a community production of uh, The Sound of Music. And so uh, 
I, I was pulled into theater, and because of the camaraderie of theater, more than the performing, I loved the instant community and friendships and bonds that, that, that you know, casts uh, get. So uh, I got kind of serious about theater and performing and acting, and shortly after that, I kept, we kept go, this group of kids would go into New York City and we would see Broadway shows on the weekends because it was cheap if you were a student. And we saw Pippin and I got blown away by Ben Vereen. I thought he moved like nobody had ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I wanted to be him. So the next day I said, I've got to learn to dance. Uh, not realizing, A, I'm white and Jewish. B, I'm about 35 pounds overweight. Uh, you know, it, it just wasn't a pretty picture. And I, uh, I went into tap class uh, I started taking tap dancing, which is good for learning how to kind of move your feet and change your balance. And then in college, as an as a theater major, we had to study ballet and modern dance. And uh, when I finished college, moved to New York, started doing theater, I would take dance classes in New York all the time. But I was largely helped by wonderful dancers and wonderful choreographers. So Anne Reinking choreographed Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah. And, you know, she'd throw things at me. Some I could do, some I couldn't. And the ones that I could kind of do, she'd figure out, she'd kind of teach me how on my body to make them look uh, better than they should. I've always had pretty good body awareness. I just, you know, I'm just not a trained dancer in that sense. So what attracted you to theater and acting was really like making friends. Yeah, it was community. I, I was, a, I, I'm not kidding when I said when I was little, I, I mean, I had a couple of friends, but I was a, a very lonely, kind of shy, very easily intimidated, sort of uh, frightened kid. I did not have a community. Um, I, I didn't know quite where I fit in. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, I, I sort of had some magic friends growing up uh, peripherally, but we're all geeks. All, all young magicians are geeks. And then moving didn't help. But all of a sudden, I go into the first day of rehearsals on this show. You open your mouth. You can sing a little bit and you're not a complete screw up. And everybody goes, oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so great. And now there's cast parties and now there's after rehearsal parties. And, and everybody's it's, it's instant rapport and instant community. So that's what I fell in love with. The performing was icing on the cake. I, I, I came to enjoy that. But what first got me was just this notion of I... I suddenly have a whole group of people around me that I'm accepted and I fit. That's nice. And you found that, 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 that feeling of community never went away. Over Never the, did. Uh, over and, the years. and it extends right into the Broadway community. I, That's nice. I always tell people back in New York, you know, I, I, I did, um, you know, a good 15 years of work in New York. And then I came out and have lived most of my life in L.A. There is a there is a Hollywood community. There's no question. It's very big. It's very sprawling. We do a lot of stuff uh, ostensibly together. But it's, it's really, you know, it's a benefit here and a thing there and a thing there. But there is a different feeling to the Broadway community. When I go back to New York, when I went back to do... Um, the first show back I did was uh, Fish in the Dark, maybe. I hadn't been on Broadway in God knows how many years, easily 20. And I was welcomed back like hail fellow well met. You are one of the guys that knows That's what it great. is to get up eight times a week and do this thing. You're one of us. And, and it, it never, it, they just never let you go. It's great. I love that. And, and, and speaking of the community and, and, the, and the spirit, uh, tell the Cheetah Rivera story because I think Gilbert will be fascinated by that. And that's that. Well, you, yeah. you, that was a that was a, a turning point for you. Well, it was a it was a big a um, lesson, a life. Yeah, a it, it was a role model because, you know, suddenly I met Cheetah during my second Broadway show, which was around the time when I thought, oh, you know, I might actually squeak a career out of this thing. Mm -hmm. I might be a working actor. the rink. 
The Rink. Yeah. And so The Rink, at this point, Cheetah Rivera was a, you know, one of the great divas of the American musical theater. She's a star. There's no question. And The Rink was created by her good friends, John Kander and Fred Ebb, who wrote the score. It really is a vehicle for her to win a Tony. She had not yet won her Tony, and they wanted to write a great role for her so she'd get it. And it became a mother-daughter story, and um, sort of at the last minute, the daughter was cast as Liza Minnelli. And the casting of Liza was actually, as you can imagine, bigger news than sure. the casting of Cheetah Rivera. So all of a sudden, Cheetah was sort of in the in the sort of uh, shadow of Liza. And always handled it so beautifully, gracefully, supported Liza, loved Liza. You never got a glimmer of any kind of discontent or envy or anything of the kind. But the particular the particular story that I really took note of is there was a policy during that show because Liza was out several times during the course of her run. She got very ill during that show. She eventually left our show to go to, go to Betty Ford. But when Liza missed a show, the policy was that the audience could get a refund. So they didn't have to stay. And on this one particular show, uh, I guess there was about 100 people stayed in for the show. And the stage management went to Cheetah Rivera and said, you know, look, you just don't have, we're not going to make you do a show under these circumstances. It's, it's insulting to you. The first thing Cheetah said, so there are six men in the show. The, the show were the two ladies, a little girl, and the six men. And Cheetah said, if if we don't do the show, will the guys lose one-eighth of their salary? Because you get paid, I know it's a weekly salary, but it's prorated per performance. So if you don't do a performance, you miss that part of your salary. She said, if we don't do the show, will the guys lose their salary for the performance? And they went, yeah, sure. So she said, call the guys. I want to talk to them. So we all go down to her dressing room, and she is basically saying, I am here for you. I don't want you guys to miss your paycheck. There are reasons to do this show. Um, Liza's understudy had never been on. She said it would be a great sort of full rehearsal for the understudy. She'd really get performance situation. Um, and we always had a great time doing that show. We, we were goofy on stage. We had little inside games that we would play. We, we had a great time performing that show. And she said, you know, if we do it, we'll go out. We'll have a fantastic time. We'll play. We'll, we'll have fun with each other. It'll be great. And we're all going, yeah, you know what? Screw it. We'll, we'll make our money and we'll just treat it as a lark and we're not going to, we're going to screw around. And she probably saw that energy in us. And she said, however, the hundred people that stayed, stayed. You have to give them our show. Do not cheat them. And it was at that moment that I went, the, the, the ego that this woman has, the mm. professionalism that she has, it is such a slap in her face that an entire audience would walk out because her performance wasn't deemed to be enough. They had come for Liza and they were being um, just, I have no other way to say it. It's a slap in the face. She didn't, if she took it as that, she didn't portray it as that. She accepted it. Her first concern was about her fellow colleagues in the show. And her second concern was for the audience. How about that? And I just went, if I am lucky enough to have a career in this business, I want to hold those ethics. I want that model of how you comport yourself, what's important. Um, I, I want to try and hold to that. And she really, for many reasons, that being the penultimate, uh, just That's really great changed story. the way it's I a, thought about things. It's a great yeah. showbiz story, and it's the opposite of Gilbert's work ethic. <laughs> 
if they said to you, if they came to you, Gil, and they said, there's only 20 people in the house, you don't have to do a I'd show. I'd say, do I still get paid? Yeah. <laughs> he'd blow out the yeah. door. <laughs> to that degree, he'd be, yeah. yeah. And, but you, you are. It's a great story. You had great admiration for Liza Minnelli also. I did. Liza was fantastic. Liza, first of all, I don't think I've ever come across anybody in my life as generous a human being, not just with, you know, her, her wealth. I mean, she, she was always taking us to dinner and gifts and parties, and but uh, with her time, with her energy, she... Um, she sat with me on a number of occasions and talked about things that I was doing in the show and, you know, offering me tips on phrasing songs and understanding the candor neb sort of feel of a song. And um, she was incredibly bright, uh, incredibly generous, uh, funny, and oh, so talented. Um, I mean, she you really understand why there are stars and then there are... Liza Minnelli's. She she vibrates on a different level, and she shared all of it with us beautifully. Um, she she had issues, you know, of her own mountains that she had to climb, and sometimes they got the best of her. So mm-hmm. um, it was a it was a mixed bag for her. Uh, it was a fantastic experience and education for the rest of us. It's quite astounding the 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 people, the giants that you were working with so early in your career. I was incredible. Jerome, lucky. right out of the box, Jerome Robbins and Hal Prince yeah. and Liza Minnelli and yeah. Cheetah Rivera and Stephen Sondheim, and then you win a Tony yeah. at 29. It just doesn't happen. No, it doesn't, and it it messed me up for a little while because I I had always held the Tony as well. That's the end of your days, you know. At at 70, they'll give you a Tony just for hanging in there long enough, you know. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, I I thought there was nothing beyond that, and and to get it at 29. Um, and to not have it change your life necessarily. To, I, I, I remember, you know, going home with my wife the night that I won it and really sitting in it for a minute and going, you know, I'm, I'm the same guy. I'm going to wake up tomorrow. The world is not going to be different. I'm awfully glad to have this thing, but it hasn't, it isn't a magic wand. Right. Uh, it didn't transform me. And that was another great life lesson, but it, it did kind of kick me in the head for a while. A Tony for a show he turned down three times. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Another story that hit me was when you did the pilot episode of Seinfeld, what were yeah. the notes that you Well, got? it wasn't the notes. It wasn't notes. I think what you're referring to is the when they tested the pilot, the the official NBC test results were things like and and you know memory is a tricky thing so these are things I've ex- I've heard and experienced once or twice that I've told the story a hundred times and I, hopefully I'm not augmenting it but I remember things like the lead character is not believable as a stand-up comic. <laughs> Um, the the supporting characters are obnoxious and unlikable. That I actually think they nailed right on the head. Um, and then they had categories of like too hip, too urban, too Jewish. And I remember saying to to Jerry, "Is there a kike meter somewhere?" The, the, the ten, eight is acceptable. Nine were over the. You know what is? As a Jew, I'm offended. Too Jewy. What does that mean? I mean you know. Is that part of why George became Italian? 
I have no well, idea. I, first of all, God bless you for saying George is Italian. I don't know the answer to that. Well, it could, I don't know. Fra- he's got a what? father named Frank Costanza. Right. <laughs> what? And and everybody in that family is being played by a Jew. That's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, we, I have we, no idea. We laugh about what that. What always strikes me about Seinfeld is <laughs> it really is. The characters are the most Jewish characters you can find. <laughs> I mean, the Costanzas were the biggest bunch of Jews you'd ever find, yeah. but they were somehow Italian, right? <laughs> and and uh, but Italian with no no religious no no crucifix no, on no, the no, no Madonna no. I mean, you know, it was so ambiguous. No Jew and no Italian would ever conduct themselves like this. So. And, and Julia Louis Dreyfus is supposed to be a total wasp somehow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, with the biggest head of Jew hair you've ever seen in your life. I mean, you know, it's funny, Jason. I've heard you talk about how you know how fortunate you guys were, how you can't grow a show today the way that show was allowed to find its yeah. way. And you know, right. he- heroes like Rick Ludwin, who passed away last year, who was yeah, uh, obviously yeah. an angel uh, for the yeah. show. People, people can read about that. Uh, it, it's it's amazing. You you look back on it. It's also I've heard you talk about you know larry's bravery that larry was always willing to walk away <laughs> more than willing he walked away that he walked away several times that it that, that it was a lesson in letting letting creators create absolutely but it's a lesson that it seems has not uh has not gone very far that network television um, at the very least has not caught on to yeah, yeah. I, it's still uh, from my understanding i haven't done a network show in a while but yeah it, it's it's creativity by committee which doesn't really work and Larry and Jerry proved it and Larry proved it again with Curb it is yeah you hire people that you believe in they have a vision and you support the vision if it works great if it doesn't you say hey nice try but you don't you you don't try and alter their vision to make it what the numbers tell you it wants the I always talk about um, things like audience testing I, I think I come from the theater so we always do preview performances you know of shows the audience collectively and spontaneously is brilliant. If you just listen and pay attention, they'll tell you. I, I'm sure Gilbert is a comic, you know. They'll tell you when something is working and not working. But don't ask them why it's not working. Be- because they don't have that information. They'll give it to you, but they don't have it. You, uh, you have to figure out, I intended this to have a result. It's not having the result. What am I going to do differently? All they do is hold the mirror up for you in a brilliant way. But they are not, they are not um, collaborators, and and that's the mistake that yeah. I think the suits make. Yeah, it it's kind of it reminds me of like when I was on Saturday night, and the reviewers would attack the show, which was fine, but they never knew why. Like right. they were saying stuff like, well, we don't know who these people are. And it's like, <laughs> nobody knew Belushi or Aykroyd of course. or Chase. Of course. Yes. Of right. course. Yeah. Are you familiar with a project that the, uh, in which Gilbert worked with Larry before you did, Jason? Are you fam- Not sure. Are you familiar with the oh. famous Gilbert Gottfried, Larry David collaboration called Norman's Corner? I am ashamed to say yeah. I am not. Okay. <laughs> well, you fit what? yourself in with the majority. <laughs> I they they once were, were doing what was called a backdoor pilot. I think it was a Cinemax comedy experiment yes. back when they did mm. those. And I was a guy who worked in a newsstand, and 
uh, Larry David wrote it. And then, and it was not a hit. Although Arnold Stang was in it. Ar- yes, I asked for Arnold Stang. Um, and, and then years later, uh, when they were pitching Seinfeld as a series, the, the head of the network, one of the heads of the network said, uh, who's, who's going to be writing this show? And they said, Larry David. And he said, isn't he that guy that wrote that piece of shit for Gilbert Gottfried? <laughs> <laughs> That's our boy. <laughs> so, so the show I did was so bad, it almost kept Seinfeld off the air. <laughs> well, I tell you. And nobody nobody would have been less surprised than Larry David. I think Larry must wake up every day and go, what the hell happened? How, how did this... How did this happen? Well, he has that great line that he went from a poor schmuck to a rich prick. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I also love the example, too. I didn't even know this that, that uh, until I saw an interview with you, that the episode where uh, uh, Kramer just is, not Kramer, where uh, George just goes back to work. Just yeah. goes just goes back to the job and hopes that yeah. nobody knows. Oh, After quitting. I, was based on yeah. Larry quitting SNL. I, I Absolutely. Re- yeah. The funny thing is, uh, my my conversations with Larry David, which were usually horror stories about trying to get laid. <laughs> <laughs> but so many times I'd watch a Seinfeld episode and go, oh, I heard that story. Oh, yeah. No, so many... <laughs> They came out of his notebook. Absolutely. Tell us about Absolutely. the legendary Larry David notebook. Uh, notebooks. Not I mean, he's got them going back. I don't right, know how right, long. Right. Um, yeah, Larry. Larry uh, keeps a, a daily journal of names that he hears. That he goes, "Oh, that's a good name. I'm going to use that." Or you know, the tiniest little hint of a situation. I he'll hear overhear a bit of conversation about. I couldn't go to the movie. I had to walk the dog, and they'll go, "Oh, a dog in a movie. A dog in a." You know, he just notes these things, um, passing thoughts that he has about should I have said this or should I have done that or should. And he writes them all down. And so when it came to episodes, what you know, initially the episodes came out of routines that Jerry had established. Right, he was, he was right. using his material, his source material for the show. But eventually Jerry was being forced to do stand-up segments in the show that A, he didn't always write, and B, he was not comfortable delivering these you know, these things. He likes, if you know Jerry, he likes to hone his material. So it required different source material all of a sudden. And that's when I think they started going to Larry and his notebooks. And there was just so many different things. And it also, I think, became the character of the show of these three and four stories floating through sure. one episode they and made somehow an dovetailing at the end. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. brilliant. I, I remembered one Larry David Horace story. <laughs> he <laughs> was going to, he got a date with some girl. So that was already unbelievable. And right. he, he's going to meet her in Central Park. And they're right, uh, it's, he's there right outside Tavern in the Green, and he, she hasn't shown up yet. So he sits down in Central Park, and he sits on a pile of shit. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and then he went oh, into Jesus. Tavern on the Green, and I think he took his pants off in the men's room to try to clean it. And, oh, like, security God. was telling him to leave. <laughs> to get out. 
He's a homeless person. See, he's, yeah. he's got Larry David stories you don't even know. Jason. Oh my God! Tell I'm, us. I'm amazed we haven't seen them. I think one of the things that Gilbert and I are amused by on Seinfeld too is the is the weird uh, Abbott and Costello motifs. Yes. The, 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 I know. They name a character Sidney Fields. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and your friend Wayne yeah. Knight's character Newman is is yeah. is so much. It's sort of strange. He's, he's stinky to, Joe. To stinky, yeah. Stinky <laughs> Besser. And, and on one episode, we're so fond uh, of that. Seinfeld even says to to uh, you. He says, "Boys, boys." Yeah, 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 right. yeah. absolutely. A lot, yeah. Or- Jerry has Jerry had a couple of um, not only Abbott and Costello. There were always things that Stooges he would do. Too. That would, Stooges, yeah. absolutely. But yeah. he he, I stole a phrase from Jerry. I stole many things from Jerry, but I stole a phrase that he would use all the time that he stole, and I didn't realize it was Tom Snyder. But it's it's that. <laughs> all right, sir. <laughs> all right sir after after anything that makes no sense you just go all right sir <laughs> we could we could we jump around it but a couple of more things on seinfeld uh, jason and we could ask you about a lot of those wonderful actors like len lesser and barney martin oh, God, i mean sure, great yeah. great showbiz faces great yeah. showbiz veterans but we have to ask you about uh jerry stiller because you were also the mm-hmm. roast master at his comedy central roast yeah tell us something about jerry who we adore well, the, I'll, the first thing I'll tell you is you have every right to adore him. He, he, um, well, going from when I heard he was coming. So Stiller is the third guy to play my father in the show. Most people don't right. know that because before we ended shooting, we went back and shot every episode, scene from every episode that he wasn't in where there was a Frank Costanza and we put him in so that in syndication, it's always him. But he was the number three guy. Um, when I heard he was coming... I, my head fell off because I grew up with Stiller and Mira sure. on the Ed Sullivan show. I had seen them do Neil Simon plays off-Broadway. I had I, I watched Jerry Stiller and Hurley Burley on Broadway. I knew him as a classical actor. I knew him as a comedian. So I was thrilled. And when he stepped on the stage, I think Stiller came into our world at a time when his world had really started to go away. Uh, he, you know, Stiller and Mira were not a thing anymore, and and he, I, I think the jobs were coming few and far between, and all of a sudden he gets invited to this hit show where he thinks he's beholden to everybody, and I'm going, we are so lucky to have you. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Oh, and sweet. He and I bonded very, very early, um, and and are still close to this day. He is so sweet and so kind and so unassuming. He is. He's just so grateful to be to have the life he's had to work with the people that he's worked with, um, and he's genius and he doesn't realize that he's genius. He he he, he I I think he would tell you that he is uh, an underwhelming actor when in fact he is really a unique, um, talented and intelligent actor, and. It could be that I, you know, kept reflecting that back to him all the time, how much joy I had being with him. You know, there's, there's, if you look at the outtakes, I think they're on YouTube, there's one where you can see how much A, I adore him, and B, I can't survive him, because (laughs) for some reason, uh, Frank has had to move in with George, and we do the end of the show in bed together. We're sharing a bed, and he's eating a bowl of kasha varnicas. And I and I just have to sit and watch him eat this thing for like a minute, and then at the very end, with me looking at him like I want to kill him and kill myself, he takes a spoonful and offers it to me and goes, "Gasha," and I can't. I never, I never got through a take. They had to cobble together. 
I couldn't do it. His face, his attitude, everything about it was just so great. And my favorite moment between him and me and and Ben, his son, is when Stiller and Mira got their star on the Walk of Fame. You know, Jerry said, would you be so gracious as to be one of the speakers? You can have one or two speakers. Ben was not one of them, but Ben is standing right there. And in front of the whole crowd, I go, you know, you're his actual son. <laughs> you're allowed to to usurp me here if you like, but um, he's just great. I, I I I hear from him a couple of times a year. Um, you know, he's he's uh, things have been tough for him since Ann yeah. passed away, but he uh, he's got wonderful people taking care of him, and I think he is still happy. And I I go to New York in April, so I'm I'm hoping to catch him. There. We watch him in anything. Oh, he's, he's wonderful. hysterical. Wonderful. Oh, the best. And yeah. the best. You said in some interview, a lot of the Frank Costanza character was because yeah. he'd mess up his lines and mispronounce words. Yeah, and- he. It's sometimes he'd mispronounce, but it was more about he doubted his memory. He always had it. He always had it. He knew his lines, but. They would. He was so stressed over it that they would come to him in like two and three word fits, and he was he was so frustrated that he couldn't like get it all in one shot. He he wanted to he wanted to be able to say, "Are you telling me there's no vacancies at Del Boca Vista?" That's what he wanted to do. But it would come to him in little things. So it would, and, and the rage of Frank Costanza was the rage at himself. So he goes, "Are you telling me this?" No vacancies! And it's just, it's building rage because he's just so upset with himself. It's fantastic. I have to say, as wonderful as the ensemble of four is, the scenes yeah. with you and Estelle and Jerry, the three of you, oh, just, just gold. We just, had the best bench. Great trio. The best bench in show business. We, yeah. There's never been better. You and, know? and you you said somewhere that you were always afraid. You had so much fun doing that show that you are afraid they just find out they're paying you to have fun. Yeah. It's uh, it's a line I use all the time. I say, you know, we would go to work. We would laugh our asses off for uh, anywhere from five to eight hours, ten hours. I'd do that four or five days a week, go home, and at the end of the week, they would pay me. And I went, this is, they're going to catch on sooner or later that, A, <laughs> we're overpaid, and B, we'd probably do it for a lot less. It was, it was even when things were, you know, potentially when there was grist in the oyster offstage uh, if, during, um, you know, times when we would be negotiating or renegotiating, none of that ever came on stage. When we all got onto that set and we started playing together, it was a love fest and a laugh fest every single day. And it, it was just for nine years. How do you how do you do that? It was a, amazing. A show Miracle. that continues to make millions of people happy. Yeah. It just must feel important, special to you that you got to be part of that. Tell, tell that wonderful story about the Marines approaching you in the restaurant. Oh, uh, yeah. So one of the unanticipated things about Seinfeld, because you know, I think we always think of it as our stupid little comedy show. You know, we, we don't we don't overinflate its importance in, in, in the world. But I meet people or I get letters from people literally every week who say it was more than that for me. I was going through some really dark stuff. Either they were sick and they were being treated or they uh, had lost someone dear to them. Or um, uh, And they would talk about how the show gave them back their laughter. And and, um, and I've heard this from a number of people in the military, but on this one occasion that you're talking about, there's a, um, 
a hotel in San Francisco called the Marines Memorial Hotel. And uh, I believe uh, any active service member uh, can stay there for free. So it's, it's frequented by a lot of military people. Uh, I was having dinner at the rooftop restaurant in that uh, building, and my back was sort of to the room. And suddenly, towards the end of the dinner, I feel a, a presence behind me, and I turn around, and there's about 50 Marines in uniform. And they've been drinking for a while, so it's a little bit sloppy. But the, the designated speaker comes forward, and he says something about, uh, Mr. Alexander, I don't mean to interrupt your, uh, your dinner, sir. I just want to say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making up names. I'm, I'm Corporal uh, Johnson. Uh, this is the 203rd platoon of the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, we all served uh, an 18-month uh, deployment in the theater in Iraq. And uh, uh, in about three months, we're going to be heading out to Afghanistan. And we really enjoy serving together. But what we wanted to say to you, sir, is that, you know, when we're out operating in the in the theater, um, you know, we see things and we do things. We're engaged in things that are really hard, really hard, that can strip away your your sense of humanity, your sense of self. And we would come back from those deployments. We'd get back in our barracks and we had the DVDs of your show, sir. And we would we would throw them on. And as a group, we would sit and watch three or four episodes. And slowly, we'd begin to laugh together again and drink together again. And our humanity would come back to us. And we were able to sleep that night and go out and try and do God's work the next day. So we just want you to know, sir, that we think of you as the 51st member of this platoon. And with that, he yells out, Semper Fi! And they all snap to attention <laughs> and snap that? out a salute to me. That? And I'm like, oh, man. and I'm, you could mop me off the floor. What a story. I, I just was blown away by by the by the fact of that story but that these guys would come over um it's great. and share that it's, it's but that that's the kind of reaction i've had and i'm sure all of us have had uh, around the world it, from people that you just never expected from it's great it is an amazing thing cuz i've had i've experienced that too where people come over to me and break down crying yeah. about how they used to watch it with their parents where they see me on TV with their parents or with a, a family other family members yeah. who died and it you, you don't realize no that you, you don't and people. you know and and Gilbert in your case I and I talk about this a lot and I only know about it really because we were both in the aristocrats together but you know what you did at the Hefner roast right after 9/11 where that room was dying there was there was no laughter to be had, and you launched into the the aristocrats <laughs> joke, and took it as far as any human being can possibly take, and it was so brave, and it was so only someone who we know, and I don't want to undercut the the whole comedic image that you have, but only someone that we know is as humane and loving as you are could have gotten away with that bit at that time but man <laughs> you you turned that room around i mean honestly it w- it was the first step of a way back from something that many people who love new york thought there was no way back from and and i always credit you with that i think that was an amazing magical How about moment that, that wow thank you jason my pleasure sir launched a feature film and I liked your your version of the aristocrats, and your friend Peter Tilden was absolutely no <laughs> yeah. help to you, by the way. 
my my favorite moment in my story is where all the male members of the family are lying on top of each other with penises inserted in anuses yes. and then spinning in different directions while <laughs> orgasming like the Bellagio fountains. Right. I thought that was a nice. <laughs> it, was, it was nice what you did with it. Do, do you 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 want to talk about doing uh, doing Duck Man? Do you have any memory of this man being on Duck Man? Uh, a beloved oh, show. And you know, now here's the problem. We didn't record together, I'm sure. No. Right. He was art but, to So self. I, I forget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was so art I pro- to I'm self. sure I saw the episode. Uh-huh. And, sure. And even though I only had one line of a song, I remember the song. You're ahead of me. I, what was yeah, the song? Okay. I finally made it. My dreams can come true. I finally made it. It's the ultimate lazy man's coup. I got, oh, what a beautiful morno. I can spend it with porno because it's just what I'm aching to do. Because I finally, you finally, we finally made it. <laughs> Does Bravo, that, my does friend. Does that ring any bell, <laughs> it, it actually does. It actually does. Who, what, who was Art DeSalvo? I'm trying to remember. He was like a sleazy agent. Okay. As opposed to honest agents. Yeah. 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 constantly you know, telling A, a departure from the, uh, the yes. normal depiction of an agent. A, a science fiction. What a smart, yeah. subversive show that was, Jason. And, oh, and, and, it was and, heaven. And everybody heaven. was on that show. I mean, everyone. Yeah. And it, amazingly, it, it, it just happened before the big wave of South Park and, and mm-hmm. those kind of deviously subversive shows in animation. So it it's a little bit of a lost gem. We've been trying to, to find a market to, to reboot it because um, the, I mean, everybody would love to do that again. I, I think it would work just as well now. I, I remember when I was doing it, the character had to be violently throwing up and we spent like an hour. They they had a plastic bag for me to make throw up sounds, and then oh, they Jesus. said, "Well, fill up your mouth with water and make it more gurgling." And oh, I was God. spending like over an hour going. <laughs> it was so much fun. You know, you talk about They're an so actor the committing. joys of it. An yeah. actor committing every episode, you 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 sounded like you were putting your your heart and your spleen into every one of those reads. Oh, those sessions used to kill me. I can I, imagine. I'd come out and go. I hope I can speak tomorrow because they were brutal. I they can brutal. imagine. I want to work and, in. And another ahead, thing we sort of did together, but never did together. Oh, Jafar. I uh, no, yes, right. that's yes. Return, yeah. Jafar, yeah. Yep. Return of yep. Jafar. Yeah, Return of Jafar. Absolutely. And and the other one is I was in the first episode of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, that's right. I think you're the first that's right. person they kept on us, camera. They yeah. kept us far apart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great show. God, that show is so much fun to do. I just want to work in quick a couple of questions from uh, listeners, Jason, if I can. We do this thing called Grill the Guests, and this is about Duckman. Uh, Jacob Reed uh, said, I do believe there was an instance, because you talk about not recording with the other actors. I do believe there was an yeah. instance when you were able to record alongside Tim Curry, Nancy Travis, your co-star, and Judith Light. In an episode, Correct. is that the is that yeah. the, the thing where you were doing the Who's Afraid of Junior Wolf? Absolutely, kind of a thing. We, and he wants to know did what it, it like was a like. Radio play. Yeah, it was it was great. It it took a very long time, uh, for the very reason that they don't have people record together. Um, 
it's very rare that you nail what they want on the first read. So it's easy when you're alone to go back and do a piece over and over and over, do a line over and over and over. Uh, when you're reading together like a radio play, you're kind of married to the group performance. So it took a while. Uh, we did it in little chunks, but it uh, it was great. To, uh, so much better to do it that way imagine. because you're, you're living off the other voices. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. We're going to give you your choice here. Do you want to talk about working with the great Robert Duvall Yep. Working with the great, but you found him quiet and intense, Robert De Niro. Uh-huh. Or something we like to talk about on this show, which is working with a monkey. Dealer's choice. What do you like? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, they were not dissimilar. Uh, they were all... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> well, Dunstan... I mean, it's fascinating to watch. We've talked to people on this show who've worked with chimps yes. and with monkeys, yeah. and it's something that we yeah. remain fascinated by. Yeah. Dunstan was neither of those, by the way. An orangutan. an orangutan. And an yeah. orangutan is an ape, an uh, ape. not excuse a monkey. Me. Excuse me. And I couldn't tell you the real difference between them, but they kept they, making a big they, distinction. Uh, a simian. Apes, yes. don't, apes don't have tails. There you go. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. He was uh, he was an extraordinary creature. I mean, it... it, it it's one of the thrills of my life that I actually got to have a relationship and an experience with, with, with an animal like that because, you know, unless you're a zoologist or you work of with course. animals, you would never have that. And this creature was extraordinary. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, the trainers would say, we really didn't have to teach him much. We kind of talk to him and we demonstrate stuff and then he kind of does it. And he, unlike most movie animals will always be looking at their trainer. So if the shot is over your shoulder, um, the camera would tell the story that the, that the animal is looking at the actor. The animal is always looking at their trainer, waiting for the signal, waiting to be told what to do, and then late waiting for its reward. This orangutan would deal with me. He would deal with Eric Lloyd, who played the little boy in mm -hmm. the movie. Um, it was as if he was engaging with us. It is a creature that without effort could have squashed any of us like a bug he has 20 to 30 times the strength of a man and he was so gentle and so sweet and and there were games that he and i would play that when i saw him we had wrapped the film and now five months later we're doing publicity and the minute he saw me he signals for those games again i mean it's it's like he i lived in his memory uh and I, amazingly i just got back from australia I was doing a comedy tour and I was doing a meet and greet and a woman came up to me and she said, I worked with, the, the animal's name was Sammy. Sammy, yeah. He said, I worked with Sammy in the wild animal park that he went to to retire and that he had a wonderful life, but he actually died very young. He was six years old when we did the film and he died around 12 years old, oh. and, which is unusual because orangutans can live to be uh, in their 80s. So uh, it was a short life, but he apparently he got uh, some sort of a cancer or something and, and didn't make it. But um, but he had a nice retirement. He was a, an amazing creature. That's a lovely story. I mean, we had some actors on the show who didn't have... Dick Miller was bitten by a chimp. Yes. Uh, uh, this is an ape, obviously, so it's a different, it's yeah. a different, and, it's and a different I, situation. But. And I had a part in Funky Monkey. <laughs> Yeah. So. You, how much did you interact? Was that a, was that an orangutan or a, it was uh, a chimpanzee? That I think I think it was a chimp. And yeah. chimps are, I mean, this yeah. one was a nice chimp, but 
I there have been horror stories. About oh, chips. please! They they go for the groin, they go for the fingers, the lips. <laughs> I like all of those things. I like them where they are. They, yeah, yeah, I've they, they always can be heard erratic. they 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 specify they. One time it was there was a woman ripped to shreds by yes. chimps. Yes, and then many, one sure, man, many, many cases. One man, they said, you know, they bit off his fingers and mutilated yeah. his genitals. Yes. So yes. they go, they're yes. vicious creatures. So this could have happened. Strangely, to you that's what point. I did, and that's what I did in the gun attack. But I didn't want to talk. About it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the director, uh, Ken Quapis, was it? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, it got got a got a performance out of the orangutan. I mean, it's very. He's. It wasn't hard to do. Yeah. It, 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 this animal was really sweet moment. Extraordinary. Yeah. Really yeah. sweet. My really favorite sweet. moment is when he's in the hotel room and he finds Planet of the Apes while he's. Uh, <laughs> while he, while yes. he finds, he's channel surfing and finds Charlton Heston yeah, kissing exactly. uh, uh, Kim Hunter. I think it is. Yeah. Uh, talk to about uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, which is which you looked like you were having the time of your life. Making. We were having fun. I, I know, yeah, I know we they put you in time. a fat suit and shaved your eyebrows, which couldn't have been fun. Well, that's true. Um, it, it was great fun to do. I, I mean, I was basically teamed up with Renee Russo the whole time, who I adore. She is so much fun. Um, for reasons I will never understand, she came to me right after we did the first reading of the script, and she said, I'm not funny. You just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And I went... I guarantee you, after having just heard you read this thing, you are brilliant. Oh. Um, and we had a great time together. We kept screwing each other up. We both had to do um, Potsylvanian dialect lessons to sound exactly <laughs> like the cartoons did. But the crazy thing is, is that the accent for, for Natasha and Boris in the cartoon, they never collaborated. So they're doing different things. They're making different sounds. And if I listened to her, I would do the wrong thing. And if she listened to me, she would do the wrong thing. So we had to keep retreating to our separate corners to get, you know, re-advised on, uh, on the dialect. And then De Niro was just, uh, you know, friends of mine would, would keep saying, you're in a De Niro movie. And I'd go, yeah, kind of, kind of. <laughs> 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 a very different kind of De Niro movie. Bob was, was which he also great. produced, by the way. He did, and yeah. I, I and he was great. I I had to learn. I, I so clearly I'm intimidated by everybody, but I was very intimidated by him. I didn't know what kind of a set he liked to be on. So Renee and I immediately we were wackadoos. We we're just goofing around all the time. But when Bob was on the set, we thought, well, should we tamp it down or do we include him? Do we not include him? How do you know, I don't know what to do here. And I don't know where it came from after about 10 days of being intimidated, we're we're setting up for a shot and one of the camera guys says uh Hey, Bob, would you mind uh, taking a step to your left? And I don't know where this came from. I started doing Pesci, and I went, wait a minute. Hold on. Bobby, don't don't move. Who the fuck are you to tell this man to move? Who the fuck are you? Move your fucking camera over there, you piece of shit. And I start going full Pesci, and Bob is laughing, and I go, okay, I know the way in. I start busting. So you, you play with, with him, and he, and he just had a great time. And... He again, another guy that you go. Is he going to be gracious? Constantly come into the trailer, have a drink, have a. He's called me to do a couple other things, um, projects that did, actually did not happen. But he would call me and fly me in to do a reading. He's he's just been that's cool, really you, lovely. You could never tell, but it sure looks watching the movie, especially the dance scene. 
It it sure looks like he's having fun. And I that think you he and was Renee having, fun. having fun. I think fun. it was a. Uh, I think uh, you know it's so funny, but I think Bob looks to have fun. I think uh, he takes his work seriously, but I think he finds it all really fun to do. Um, and when you look at the at the full breadth of his work, I, you know, yeah, sure, half the time he's he's strangling people or beating the shit out of them. But when he's not, he's playing comedians. Yeah, and, he turned out <laughs> you know, he turned out to be a good comedian. I mean, if you look at performances like Mid- Midnight Run comes to yeah. mind. Yeah. We had a funny moment, you know, this was back when I was intimidated by him. So, you know, he has a reputation for liking to ad lib and and be kind of loosey goosey in takes. Um and initially in a couple of the scenes, uh, he was doing some of that. And I I had nothing on this. We had a moment side by side and I said, Bob, I you know, I know you uh you you like to play with improv in your films and your work. Um, and you get some great results. Do you do you find that that's um, do you find that that's uh, useful in comedy films as well, comedy work? And anyway, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, some writers there's a music to how they write. So if you if you don't say a Neil Simon line the way he wrote it, it it won't quite work. If you don't say a Woody Allen line the way he wrote it, it won't won't quite work. And he looked at me and he and he said, uh, well, I'm certainly not going to debate comedy with you. And I didn't know, did he just compliment me? Wow. Or oh. ask me to go fuck myself. <laughs> I, I just, I couldn't, I, I couldn't read it. And, and so I, I, I crawled under a shelf for a little bit until I realized he, he was being very complimentary. That's nice. <laughs> but, well, well, of course, he had that bad Neil Simon experience where he was he re- did. replaced was terrible, Neil as Simon. a goodbye girl. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because he couldn't get the panties off the shower. Right? Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is some good trivia, Gil. We have now had two live action actors. Actors who played Boris Badenov on the show because Dave Thomas was here. Oh, oh, sure. So there you go. Yeah. More trivia for you, Jason. What yeah. do, What do you have in common with Murray Hamilton from Jaws fame and Robert Redford? What do I have in common with Murray Hamilton and Robert Redford? Yes. Is it, it, it's not a birth date. No, it's a, I, it, it's a, no. it has to do with an on-screen performance. An on-screen performance. Gilbert, do you know? Murray Hamilton. Robert Hamilton. You certainly know Murray Hamilton. Yeah, Murray Hamilton and Robert Redford. You know, Gil? All three of you played Death on The Twilight Zone. Oh, my God, yes! Oh, I knew that about... Yes! uh, About... uh, uh, um, Yeah, uh, I knew that about... uh, Not Murray. Redford. But I... Yeah, Well, Murray's the one one with Ed Wynn. Okay, so... Ed Wynn is great. Yeah, and Redford was really young when he did it. He plays a cop who's shot in an alleyway outside a woman's home. She has an apartment. She's an old woman, and she's so afraid of death, she is a shut-in. She never opens her door. That's right. And she sees this young cop get shot, and out of humanity, she allows him to come inside. And then eventually he reveals himself as death. And Mildred he, Dunnick, I think, was the actor. Yeah, he says, you, yeah. Ju- you just have to take my hand. Just hold my hand. And, yeah. and it's, a, it's a beautiful episode. And Gilbert yeah. both, and I both wow. watched your Twilight Zone episode. And it's yes. a very good performance. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun one. Thank you. Disturbing. Thanks. Disturbing. Yeah, well, you know. were, were you a fan of the original show? We had Ann Serling Loved here. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I remember and, a bunch of the original ones that, you know, kind of freaked me out. And I remember with the Murray Hamilton one, he says to Ed Wynn, he says, well, we can let you live if there's some important thing in your life that you haven't done yet, unfinished business. And Edwin says, well, I never rode in a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Who else 
is doing Ed Wynn in this day and age, Jason, right? Oh, I tell you, I cornered the market on that. Hey, Dan, Bye, you just lost the video. <laughs> Hang on, Jason. We're trying to get your video. Right. We're trying to get your video back. I don't look any better, I promise. Yeah, we're Twilight Zone fans. Here. Do you remember the one, the first one I ever saw was a really strange one. It was um, Sebastian Cabot and Larry Blyden. Oh, yeah, I sure. Think. Yeah. Where he plays the the little gangster who goes to heaven and everything is too easy. <sighs> what is the, yes! name? What is goes, the name of that one? Yes. I, he, it goes, I want to go to the other place. And Sebastian Cabot goes, this is the other place. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because uh, that's where he sur- he's wins every bet immediately. And he doesn't right. like and he, it. Right, he wins bets and he robs banks and it's too easy and never gets caught. Yeah, the whole shebang. Okay, I have something here from Rupert Holmes. Uh, you played a character named Alan Ballinger. Yes. Who had a romance with a series, this was a Rupert series, uh, Remember When. Remember When. Yeah. Uh, he had a romance with the series diva, uh, Hillary Booth, whose name was inspired yep. by Hillary Brooke. Oh. There we go, we're back to Abbott and Costello. And he sent, <laughs> yeah. me, he sent me a picture of you. Can you, see, you probably can't see this. With your, oh, but with, I remember the look. With your widow's It's very peak. Max Maven. Yeah, very <laughs> yeah, Max Maven. Very much so. Yeah. Rupert sends love. He's done this show a bunch of times. Oh, uh, that's so sweet. I, I remembered another thing you said that you were once talking about Michael Richards, that he was once confused about how to play Kramer. Oh no no no! I th- I, if this is the story that uh, that I think it is, uh, I, not that he was confused. Um, I think uh, one of the secrets of Michael's success in that role is, uh, and you'd have to check in with Larry or Jerry about this, but I, in my memory, the the intention on Kramer was that he was going to be a, very much a secondary character. You know that he was the the. Uh, the nutty neighbor across the hall and that he wouldn't play that much into storylines. And the concept was always that he's the dumbest guy in the room. He's just a dummy. But Michael once said to me, um, what I did that I don't think they expected was I play him as the smartest guy in the room. And it sounds like something that would be only perceived as a subtle shift, but it actually was such a magnificent way of doing that guy that I believe Michael showed the writers how to write that character. I I, I feel like oh, certainly cool. I, maybe Julia. I think Julia and I learned who George and Elaine were from the writing. The writing would show up every week. It would add another piece to the puzzle. And we'd go, oh, okay, let's incorporate that. But I think with Michael's case, it went the other way. I think Michael would do things that no one expected, no one anticipated, and in Larry's case, that no one appreciated for a while. And then... They went, oh, you know what? Let's get on his bandwagon because he he sort of reinvented that role. I love too that, um, yeah. I mean, every, everybody. Uh, well, you know, and they're all they're all composites, right? Of people that Larry knew. I mean, the lane is loosely based on 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 several people, including Carol Leifer. That's what I've heard. Your uh, Kramer's kind of Kenny Kramer, Kenny, Kenny Kramer, yeah. but 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 other people. I love yeah. that. Uh, I love the moment, and, and people are always asking you to pick a favorite episode, and you don't. But you do have that moment, which is the pendant publishing scene. Yeah, with the with with the cleaning woman, which which was yeah. a, a seminal moment for you. Why? Because I started to understand um, the one of the big characteristics of George was his ability to dodge his own consequences. Um, and <laughs> That's true. 
and I found I found it creative and funny and charming. So, and I had nothing to do with this other than appreciate the writing. But the the moment that we're talking about is George has been having sex with the cleaning woman in his office at Pendant <laughs> Publishing, and it, he's been caught. And now he's in front of the boss, who boldly and baldly says, "George, it's come to my understanding." <laughs> That you've been having sex on the desk in your office with the cleaning woman. Now, what do you write? If you're Larry David or Jerry Seinfeld, what do you write as a response? No, I didn't. Who said that? Um, you know, I'm the victim. I'm the victim. That it could have been. It, there's a number of things you could go to. Sure. But what they wrote was a long pause of consideration, and then George going, "Was that wrong? Should I not have done that?" Because I got to tell you, I've I've worked in a lot of offices, and, and that kind of thing goes on all the time. I mean, you know, it's just this whole, this such a unique yeah. way of deflecting back. You know, the the ignorance of I thought that was acceptable behavior. I just thought it was so brilliant, and it, it really it, it could key me into George's way of thinking. And to that extent, it, I, I could at least be a fraction more helpful when scripts would come and I'd go, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's this, you know. And every now and then I'd have a good idea, but only because they showed me how he thinks. Did you like playing the physical comedy as well? I'm, th- I'm thinking of you running out of the, the men's room and the Vandalay, trying oh, to put sure. with the pants, your pants at your ankles. I mean, a lot of yeah. pr- a lot of Pratt falls. And you and yes. Kramer sort of, in certain episodes, become like a Mutt and Jeff team. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, Michael is, listen, Michael's ability to simply move his body is, yeah, I mean, there's is a, light years beyond what I can do. But I've always loved- ballet to the comedy. Um, yeah, I, I've always loved, um, you know, the the pants, the fall was my idea. That was something that came during rehearsals it's where great. I thought, oh my God, now, if his pants are down, that would be great. Um, I, I have to, and I have a habit of doing this and bringing the room to a dead halt. At times, but I have to ask you this: If we'll even sure. use it on the show, and that is, you ha- there was an actor who used to play your boss on the show, Don O'Hagan, I think was his name. Uh he was like a husky guy, and it was like Will George. And his uh, boss when he worked for the Yankees? Yeah, no, no, no. No, he was no, like, no. Yeah, it was like a, a, a I, I, if this is the guy that I think you're talking about, is this the actor who eventually committed suicide? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh no, uh, you're, you're talking about you're talking about the guy who was found dead recently. No, no, this, no, no, this, no, no, no. This, this happened was, about three or four years ago. He he uh, was in that more. episode where uh, uh, George remembers they took his clothes and threw it into the ocean. Okay. And, and he he used to talk like that. He he would play cops and and army sergeants in movies. Yeah, was it was his name? I thought it was something like Daniel von Vargen or something, something like that. Something like that. Kruger. Yeah. They say they're telling us here. Yeah, it was Kruger. Kruger. He played Mr. Kruger. That's right. right. Yes. And it was Thank Kruger you, Kruger Kruger Industrial Smoothing uh, was the company, and and the bit was that Kruger was a boss who was. He had no idea what the company did. He had no idea. You know, it was one of those things where you you couldn't screw up because there were no rules. There was there was no standard of, of behavior or performance. Um, and I think Daniel did. He probably did about five or six of our episodes. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get to know him very well. Uh, a very sweet guy, and I hadn't seen him for God. I mean, since the show had wrapped, and it was years later that 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 uh, he took his life, and yeah. I. 
the yeah you just i know i know it, you know it's kind of amazing if you do a show as long as we did with the numbers of people that we intersected with the sad truth is i i have with the exception of the careers that really went on to be kind of big careers that either launched or were enhanced by our show i probably couldn't name most of the wonderful actors that were on our show and I often wonder, you know, I, I, when I do bump into people who did a single episode and they say things like, I was the close talker. I was the close talker. And, and, and I go, well, how has that been for you? And they go, it's, it, I can make a living off of it. Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, people go, oh, my God, you're the close talker. We want the close talker. So I know a lot of good things have happened for people. But, you know, you do wonder about what, what is a life yeah. like that when you, I, you have a, a great moment on something that's as big as an and Well, people I, like O'Hurley and Larry Thomas. I mean, they're still and, – and, yeah. and, and Rennie Santoni, I mean, who had a career, Absolutely. a big career before. I mean, they're still getting recognized all the time. You bet. You bet. Yeah. 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 Thanks for bringing the, the yes, show to a halt. Yes, yes. I halt, always yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah, I, nice. I always do that. Jason, a couple of quick ones. We'll let you get out of here. Stephen sure. Antonuccio said, uh, you just turned 60, Jason. What would a 60-year-old George Costanza be doing if the series were still on? Would he be married? Would he be employed by the Yankees? Would he have ever matured and evolved? Well, I, I can't. I can't believe he would mature and evolve, and and that's one of the reasons why I think there's no Seinfeld reboot because Good. we'd be the same assholes we were 30 years ago. Um, I, much less charming on a 60 year old. Um, I, there were two. I mean, the two suggested ideas were kind of great. One was that George is the only one who continually screwed up in jail, and he's still in there for you know offenses that were added to his sentence f- <laughs> upon being jailed, uh, and that I'm I'm you know somebody's bitch, no doubt, and running cigarettes back and forth. Um, <laughs> The other one that that Larry suggested was that uh, George got out and created an app called the Eye Toilet, which would tell you where the best and cleanest men's room was anywhere <laughs> around you, and that he had made millions but invested it all with Bernie Madoff, and so was destitute again. <laughs> and, uh, good answer. That sounds like the right and the right road. Good I answer. I heard Jerry and Larry both said, with the show. They wanted no lessons ever learned. No hugging. Right. Yeah. No, no hugging, no learning. No learning. Yeah, that was the yeah. That was the motto over the writer room door. No hugging, no learning. Oh, and tell us your real name. My my real name? J yeah. J A Y Scott Greenspan. And you said the other kids would pick on you with your name. Well, they picked on me for many things, but Greenspan was easy fodder. It was just green fill in the blank. You know, green puke, green, you know, whatever it was. And I I joined my first union when I was 14, my first actor's union. And I, so my name is Jay, but my mother would always call me Jason for some reason. So I thought if I ever took a stage name, it would be Jason Scott, my first name and my, the name my mother calls me and, and my middle name. And I went to AFTRA and they said, would you like a stage name? And I said, yes, please, Jason Scott. And they went, nope, we got 15 of them in every imaginable spelling wow. and you cannot have it. <laughs> And I had never thought of anything else. So literally in that moment, going, well, I don't want Greenspan as my stage name. And I I kind of thought, well, gee, I wonder if my dad feels bad that I keep saying that. And his first name was Alex. So I went, how about Jason Alexander? And they went, yep. And it was that was how quick it was. I had it was in the spur of that moment, not getting Jason Scott. Love that. And you say there is an actor named Jason Alexander. There are several, but the one that is most notable is Jane Alexander's son, 
who, because I had gotten the name, uh, worked under the name Jace, J-A-C-E Alexander, right. and was didn't, an actor. Didn't, he, didn't Britney Spears marry Jason Alexander? There was a, That was another Jason <laughs> oh, Alexander. Oh, I remember I came, that right. That's right. For like 48 hours. Yeah. That's right. I came home. Uh, yeah. I, who do not follow pop culture, came home one day, <laughs> you know, and my phone machine had 100 messages about, congratulations, Britney Spears. And I went, I'm being, what? how is everybody in on this punk thing that, I, that they're doing <laughs> Um, yeah, so that was a shock. <laughs> Quick, quickly, we had Marsha Mason here a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jason. We uh, talked all about Neil Simon, who you yeah. who you worked with and worked for, yeah. um, and uh, you did the Odd Couple. Do I have this right? You did the Odd Couple with you did a reading with Marty Short in L.A. But you did you do it as a kid? Did I you, did do it. Did as you a kid. play did Oscar Madison in high school? I did. I did. <laughs> we, we love. We absolutely love that. <laughs> yeah, I was Oscar Madison. David Barron, my friend David Barron, was Felix. Um, yeah. Uh, Never imagining yeah, that one day you would grow up and work with the director of the Odd Couple movie, the great Gene Sex. Absolutely. Uh, it was remarkable. And then Marty and I did do a benefit performance of that. Uh, I had a great time with Neil on Broadway Bound, loved him. And then I had such a bittersweet um, moment with him uh, just be- about a year before he passed away where I was directing a production of Broadway Bound in Los Angeles. And it, I thought it was really quite good. I, I really thought we did a nice production. And so I called uh, his wife, Elaine, and I said, you know, I don't know. I know Neil is having, you know, dementia issues. He's in and out of that. But he might enjoy this production. And she brought him down. And he did remember me. He, wow. You know, he said, I know you. I know you. And I said, yes, Neil, I played your brother in one of your plays. And he would go in and out of, of knowing where he was. Like when the, when we sat him early in the theater and the audience was coming in and he, and he said, are these the actors? And I said, you know, I said, no, this is the audience. And. But at the end of the play, he wanted to meet the cast, but he didn't quite understand that it was a show. And he went back up on the stage with them to take a photograph. And he was holding the woman that played his mother clearly as if it was his mother. And and he was crying because he knew that these people were important to him. But also, I think there was some awareness that he couldn't make sense of it. And, and wow. he was weeping for that. It was, it was wow. a very bitter, bittersweet thing. But it, I was I was delighted to share. I, I think there was some joy in it for him. So wow, was, what a lovely nice. story. How yeah. was how was doing the reading with 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 Marty? Oh, it was, you were Oscar. He was mayhem. Felix. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Not that you, you guys know, couldn't Marty, t- turn it around and do the other parts. Some of the happiest, my happiest moments on stage are with Marty Short, who I I love to death. Marty, you know, Marty is always either overprepared or underprepared for the reading. Underprepared, <laughs> um, you know, didn't know the lines, holding the book, playing the whole time. We we the audience loves Marty when he just diverts from what he's supposed to be doing to what he you know is mm-hmm. planning to do and we did the producers in LA for just shy of a year Marty made it his business to break me every night on that stage <laughs> and and five out of eight a week he would succeed and it was it, there was it was such a joy he is he he's another guy that's kind of inspiring to me in that Marty has had a lot of tragedy in his life a lot of pain and yet he always finds his way to happiness. He finds a way to make things better than they should be um, and to make events out of things. I lo- he told me a story one time about 
how whenever uh, he's scheduled for a colonoscopy, he makes sure that Steve Martin and I think he said uh, a couple other comedian friends, um, they all they all schedule their colonoscopies for the same day. So they're all doing the prep on the same day. <laughs> And he, and he said, what they do is they all go, I think they said to Steve Martin's house because he has the most bathrooms, and they play poker all night long. They never go to bed. They play poker, they fast, they drink, they crap, they bet, they laugh. <laughs> then they all go at the same time, get their colonoscopies done within two hours of each other, and then they would all go to like Nate and Al's deli and break the Unbelievable. I go, I go, you made a colonoscopy a fucking party. It's, how do you do that? How do you do Unbelievable. it? Unbelievable. Yeah. Will, yeah. Will, will you do, uh, will you tour with Gilbert and the Odd Couple or the Sunshine Boys, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Sunshine Boys, that's waiting to happen, Gil. That is the finger, the finger. Gil, give him a little your, the finger. Give him a little your Walter. Yes, it's not, it's knock, knock, knock. <laughs> if I come in, do you say enter or do you say knock, knock, knock? If you say enter, I don't come in. If you say knock, 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 I come in. It's not the Belasco Theater. It was the Morasco Theater. You're crazy. The Morasco <laughs> Theater was... <laughs> we could do it. We could go on tonight. I would love on to tonight. see that. <laughs> Last question. Patrick Izzo says, I've heard a story that at a bir- as a birthday surprise, your fr- Jason's friends took him out to celebrate and surprised him by having none other than William Shatner appear. Correct. They bought me William Shatner for my 35th oh. birthday. Oh, <laughs> Gilbert, as because we were talking he can about this. be bought. He can be bought, but <laughs> then and now. <laughs> Gilbert just spent uh, an afternoon with with uh, with William Shatner. Yeah, in, and, in Virginia. And, yes. and I never once brought up doing the podcast. Of course not. Which would be of the first not. thing. Of course, we first order of We'll have Jason do it for us. Yeah, I will tell you. You want you want to hear a nice story about uh, Shatner? Yeah, we love the man. I will truncate it. It, it, it. It's really a great story. So they bought him for my 35th birthday. I was a huge Star Trek nut. I loved him. We had a great lunch. And sort of towards the end of the lunch, he said he got really serious. And he said, I just want to share something with you. I don't know you well, but I want to share this with you. He goes, when I did Star Trek, I was a pretty young man. And it wasn't a success initially. It, it, you know, it, it had diminishing returns. We were off the air in three years. But I had been defined as Captain Kirk. And it kept me from doing other things. And even when I got other things, it was always Captain Kirk is now playing or Captain Kirk this. And he said, I resented it. And I resented the people who loved it. People would come up, fans would come up, and they would want to approach me and want to share their experience with me. And he said, and I was terrible to them. I rejected them. I was mean to them. I was cruel to them. And he said, he admitted that he was wrong and that he was a fool and an ass to do it. And what he was saying to me uh, and, he, and he said it this specifically. He said, I know you're a young guy. You're 35 years old. Your whole career is ahead of you. But this may be the biggest thing that ever happens in your life. You are, you're out there. You're playing to an audience of millions, and if not hundreds of millions of people. And you're having an effect on them that is more than just as an actor. It's more than anything you could hope to ever achieve just as an actor. You know, we touch, as actors, we touch an audience for the time we spend together and that's it. We walk away. Maybe we live well in their memory, but you're doing more than that. You may never get another one. Most of us never get one. When they come up to you and share their experience with you, love them. Take it in. Be grateful. Never, never make it something for them. They're sorry that they did. And it was, 
It was beautiful advice, and it was great advice. And much like Cheetah Rivera, it sort of set the bar for me about how you deal with with the the never ending Seinfeld fans. Um, and it's because of that that I get experiences like the Fifty Marines. Um, I never know who and who I'm talking to or why they've been so moved by this thing, but when they come up and share it, and they go, "Oh, you probably hate talking about it," I go. If you love talking about it, I'm here for you. How nice. So, How nice. Nice man. How nice. Again, yeah. Gilbert, the opposite of your lack yeah. of professionalism. <laughs> I, people people come up to me and they say, I love Aladdin, and I go, fuck you. I'm eating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I got to tell you my favorite new joke. We're going to go out on a joke. My okay. favorite new joke. Guy goes for a job interview. It's going very well. 20 minutes in, the, the interviewer says, you know, I, I, this is terrific. You're absolutely qualified for this job, and you've done a wonderful job of uh, articulating all your attributes about why you'd be so good in this job. Hey, before I let you go, let's just do something. Talk to me about maybe something that's kind of a negative attribute. So one of the negatives about you. And the guy thinks, and he goes, well, I'm too honest. I just, uh, I'm relentlessly honest, and I guess that would be it. And the interviewer says, yeah, I don't, I don't really think that's a negative attribute. And the guy says, I don't really give a fuck what you think. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Right? It takes a second. It takes like a it. second. I like right? it. I like it. What's coming up, Jason? I uh, you there's got so many one man shows I can't keep up. There's the the Broadway uh, there's yeah. Broadway Boy. There's the Master of the Domain tour that you did. You were just in Australia. We did that in Australia. I've got uh, I'm on a speaking tour across the East Coast in April, and then I am directing this summer uh, a show that is looks like it is well positioned to be going to Broadway next year. Great. Uh, it is an adaptation of War of the Roses, the Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. Sure. Film. We'll be doing that in Ogunquit, Maine this summer. Warren That's Adler. pre-Broadway stop. Warren Adler. Yep. Look at you, Got to give the writers credit. Yes, indeed. Yeah. That's nice work. So you're super busy. It's, uh, it's, uh, life is good. Life is full. Yeah. Will, will you ever play Tevye? Because we know how important that was to your mom. <laughs> Boy, I hope so. I please, hope so. Please, Jason, so. sing a little of If Ever Were a Rich Man. Uh-huh. If I were a rich man, all day long I'd. If I were a wealthy man, and the rest you have to pay for. <laughs> Let this man get back to his life. Jason, this was a kick. Thank you, my friends. A Lovely to spend time with you. You feel like you were on inside the actor's studio? Uh, I feel like you did more research than anything I've done merits. That's that's my that's my bottom line. Oh, that's not at all true. We had plenty of things we didn't get to. Oh my god. What do you think, Gil? Sunshine Boys, you and Jason. Oh yes. I, I think Let me tell you something. If Sarah, Jessica, and Matthew score in Plaza Suite, we do it next season. It's a shoe in. <laughs> I, I think uh, me and Jason should do Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> or the gin game. <laughs> yeah. Or Night Mother. You know, one of those. Uh... <laughs> Something light. Uh, this episode had everything. Thanks, Jason. So, My pleasure, guys. This oh oh uh, we we have to even after I say good night we have to keep you around for one more thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, but this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and the terrific Jason Alexander.
a very entertaining man. Thank you, Jason. This was fun. Thank you. My pleasure. I sell a line of plastics And I travel on the road And I have a case of samples Which, believe me, is a load Every night a strange cafe A strange hotel And then early in the morning I am on the road again When the season's over And my lonesome journey ends That's the only time I see My family and my friends I drive up Ocean Parkway And before I stop the car My ma leans out the window And she hollers And here is your cousin Isabel That's how you think all this girl And you remember the Tishman twins Gerald and Jerome We all came out to greet you And to wish you welcome home Meet Marowitz, Barrowitz, Handelman, Schendelmans Barber and Gerber and Steiner and Stone Boscovich, Lubowitz, Aronson, Baronson Kleinman and Feynman and Friedman and Gone Smolovitz, Volovitz, Teitelbaum, Mendelbaum Levin, Levinsky, Levine and Levi Brumbugger, Schlumberger, Minkus and Pinkus And Stein with an E-I and Stein bit of I So, my boy, and here is your brother, Sid, and here is your cousin, Yetta, who expects another kid. Whenever you're on the road, my boy, wherever you may roam, we'll all be here when you come back to wish you.